If you've got a Bible, would you open up to Ephesians chapter three, and then you can put a marker uh, in the book of Acts chapter nine. We're gonna move through some of Acts. We are continuing our series entitled Friend of God this weekend, and we are in week seven of eight of the mini-series within the series, answering the question, what are God's friends like? For four weeks, we talked about some of his Old Testament friends. Now we're in the third of four weeks talking about his New Testament friends. And in my next message, I'm gonna be teaching on Jesus, and that's the one I've been most excited to get to because Jesus was the Father's best friend, period, point blank. And Jesus teaches us so much about being best friends with the Father. But this weekend, we're gonna read a lot of scripture, all right? So if you don't like that capital B book, you're not gonna like where we go this weekend. And the reason we're gonna read so much scripture is the friend of God we're talking about today wrote half of the New Testament. I asked several of my preaching friends, uh, if you could narrow Paul's life down to four subpoints, what would they be? I got the most glazed look from all of them, like what kind of an idiot tries to boil Paul's life down to four subpoints? I'm like, you're looking at him. <laughs> Only an idiot who's preaching through an entire year, one series on friendship with God. I can't take six months to talk about the Apostle Paul. So I wanna teach you four three things that I felt the Holy Spirit kind of highlight that Paul the Apostle teaches us about being friends with God. But just like I have with each of the friends of God that we've been kind of dissecting over the last couple of months, I'm gonna give you a passage, Ephesians chapter three, probably one of my top three favorite passages which Paul wrote. Because when I read this to you, and, and the, the subject is the love of God, when I read this to you, you will see, and I believe agree, that only someone who is best friends with God would be inspired by the Spirit of God to be able to write these words, all right? Ephesians chapter three, starting in verse 16. Paul says, I pray that from his, God's glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into what? Into God's love and keep you strong. Watch this, verse 18. This is gangster. And if there's one thing I could pray over you, here is my prayer. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, the implication here is many of them don't. All God's people should, but they don't, but they should. May you have the power to understand how wide, how long, how high, and how deep God's love for you is. But he doesn't stop there. He says, may you experience the love of Christ. <laughs> Preston's paraphrase. Paul, as the best friend of God, says, but I don't want you just to know about his love. Because on that road, that day, the love of Christ is what turned my whole world upside down. I experienced his love when I didn't deserve to. So Paul says, I don't want you just to know it, I want you to experience it, though it's actually too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. 
When you study the life of Paul the Apostle, you see the man was most certainly friends with God. And I don't think God would allow someone who isn't one of his best friends to write half the New Testament. Only somebody on the inside is going to get to be inspired to write that much. So, please don't crucify me because I don't cover one of your favorite things about Paul, all right? But I'm going to give you four things. We haven't actually talked about this, and we've done a decent amount of talking about God's best friends being idiots, right? Because that helps us all understand we're, we're highly qualified to be God's best friend. <laughs> but there's one specific part of that that I want to touch on today because it's one of the things I bump into most consistently when I try to convince people to become best friends with the God of the universe. Point number one, first thing Paul teaches us about friendship with God is God's friends don't have perfect paths. We've talked about them being idiots as they follow God, but we've never actually taken a look at somebody who had a really awful pre-Jesus past. Last week, we talked about the sons of thunder, remember, being so stupid that they said to Jesus, hey, if this guy, if these people tick you off as much as they tick us off, let us just whip up a little fire from heaven, call it down. Problem solved, Jesus. Okay, this was while they were following Jesus, all right? But there's a percentage of us for whom the enemy uses our past to be the number one disqualification for having intimate friendship with the God of the universe. And if that's you, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but I'm coming right into your cul-de-sac this morning. Let me just show you. Acts chapter 9, if you put a marker there, I'm just going to read you two verses to show you that, that really accurately describe what Paul was like pre-Jesus. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats, watch this, with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Preston, you don't understand what I did in my past. Were you eager to kill the Lord's followers? Because I'm going to show you in, in verse 3 what happens with the man who in his past was literally, with every breath he breathed, uttering threats to the followers of the way. To try and paint this picture, have you ever, like on the week of Thanksgiving, gone to Costco and there's that one person driving around the parking lot who is just on fleek? They are just ticked. Then they go inside. They're bumping into people. They're just the whole time. Okay. Multiply that by like 10,000. That's how Paul was with his every breath uttering threats towards followers of the way. Preston, you don't know what my past was like. I don't think I need to. Last week I asked you, have you ever told God, listen, if you're frustrated with my neighbor, I'll call down fire from heaven. We'll just kill him. And you said, no, I've never said that. Okay, now we're going even further. Have you ever wanted to kill all of the followers of Jesus? No? Okay. Then maybe whatever is in your past has become too big of a deal to you. You haven't let go of it. And it's the number one thing getting in the way of your intimate future 
with a perfect father. Keep reading. So Paul went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women. Interesting that women were included in this. Paul kind of gets labeled as somebody who told women they should be quiet, but it's interesting to me that his pre-Jesus life, he didn't just want to arrest men who were followers of the way. Why would he want to arrest followers of the way? Because they were a threat to his way. Just a little free nugget this morning. If ladies weren't a threat, with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he would never arrested them. Just, just throwing that out there. Just remember, fellas, what it was the cowardly men were doing after the resurrection of Jesus, which they didn't know had happened yet. They're still living in the death and burial of Jesus. What were the cowardly men doing? Hiding behind a locked door. What were the women doing? Being entrusted with the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is risen. Not the message, just throwing that out there. <laughs> Paul probably had one of the worst, if not the worst, pre-Jesus pass of any of God's friends. Your life before Jesus is exactly why you need Jesus. So don't tell me it's the number one reason you should be disqualified from being friends with God. People with an imperfect past are simply in need of a perfect savior to save them. The enemy loves to say that it's your past which disqualifies you from being able to be friends with God. Whereas Jesus says, because of what I did with your past, you can be friends with the Father. Look, verse three, if you're in Acts nine. Okay, so scripture paints the picture of how bad this guy, Saul, was. But watch, in verse three, Jesus still makes a house call to this bad man. He still pursues him to become best friends. A guy wanting to kill all of his followers. Verse three, as Paul was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I'm Jesus, bro. <laughs> Preston's paraphrase the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. I love it when Jesus talks like that. Notice though, Paul, man with a horrific past, is still visited and pursued by Jesus. I don't want to hear, well, Preston, I did this, 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 and this in my past, and that's why I can't do this, 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 and this with the Father now. That's not how God talks. God knew that your past, your sinful past and mine, created relational separation between us and God. That's why he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus, to die on a cross in our place. To close the relational gap, even humans like Saul. The foundation of my friendship with God is not my behavior. It is my belief in the son whose finished work on the cross gives me the opportunity to have the God of the universe as my best friend. It's not because of something I did, but it most certainly is because of something Jesus did and my acceptance of that. Here's the second thing. 
Paul teaches us about friendship with God, God's friends have their PhD in contentment. Notice I didn't say PhD in theology. Some do, Paul most certainly did. Paul the Apostle was widely known as one of the greatest minds of his day. He's a genius. Okay, little known fact about me, that will never be said of me. Preston was one of the greatest minds of his day. Never gonna be said of me. How can it be said of someone whose life motto for 16 years was C's get degrees? Paul was a genius. And sometimes people use that as an excuse why they can't be friends with God. Well, I'm not a genius like Paul. That's why I said a PhD not in theology in contentment. A lack of contentment always creates a lack of intimacy. You will never be intimate without contentment. Let me show it to you, James chapter one, verse 17. Whatever is good and perfect, every good and perfect gift is the way I memorized it, comes down to us from God our Father. Let me show you how resentment can creep into your relationship with God based on this verse. If every gift comes from God and I have a lack of the gifts I want, a lack of the gifts I think I need, and a lack of the gifts I think I deserve, then won't I be given to resenting God because he didn't give them to me? It's called entitlement. And it's running rampant on the earth today. Resentment due to entitlement. God, I'm ticked with you because you're not giving me what I think I deserve. <laughs> I don't have time to break this down. Can I remind you what you actually deserve? Death, hell, forever. I, I wouldn't be running around going, God, you're not giving me what I deserve, unless you're saying, God, thank you for not giving me what I deserve. But most of us are angry with him because there's something we want which we don't have and we're resenting him because we blame him for not giving it to us. You'll never be intimate with the one you blame for not having what you think you deserve. Now you can turn here to Philippians chapter four if you want, but you don't have to. I'm gonna read you this passage where Paul teaches us as a friend of God how contentment is an essential part of intimate fellowship with God. Philippians chapter four, verse 10, Paul says, how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need though, for I've learned something, how to be content with whatever I have. Another way to say it, with whatever God gives me. I know how to live on almost nothing. I know how to live on practically everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or an empty one, with plenty or little. What's the number one secret? The only way to find contentment is in him. When he is the number one thing you want, it completely changes the way you see everything you have and don't have. The endless attempts to get more of this or that always get in the way of having more of him. And the only way to solve the equation of contentment is not with more stuff. The only way 
to be content is in him. Your life is not about what you have during it. Your life is about what you do with it. That's why Paul throws in verse 13. After this run on contentment, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know how often that verse gets plucked out of context? He's in a run talking about having little and having much and learning how not to change. Not to be high when I have much, not to be low when I have little. He says, as a friend of God, I've learned the secret. It's him. It's not more stuff. I tried that, didn't work. The only way to be content in this life, in the midst of a fallen world, is for your contentment to come only in him. Third thing Paul teaches us about friendship with God, and this is one of my favorites, God's friends are God's go-to chess pieces. God's friends are God's go-to chess pieces. If you've been here for a while, you may have heard me say before, here on earth in a fallen world, we play checkers. But God, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts, whose ways are higher than our ways, is always playing chess. Here's how I describe checkers. King me. Chess takes an incredible amount of intellect. That's actually good news because he's the one who has all wisdom. Let me say it like this. There has never been a move God has made which was wrong. If there's a move God makes in your life which seems wrong, it just means you don't understand it. And it also means it's probably just a divine setup for a move ain't nobody see coming next. This is why I talk to you about hiding so much, especially the younger generation. You know God's playing chess with you when he hides you. But if you're so insecure, you always need to be out front, you're gonna lose every match. So sit your bow hiney down in hiding because your daddy is trying to play chess with you. Let me show you Acts chapter 16. If you're in Acts 9, go a couple pages to Acts 16. Gonna read a lot of verses in these last two points. Acts chapter 16, this is the story of Paul and Silas in prison. Uh, sorry, that, that's point number four. This, this is one of Timmy and my favorite things that I remember probably about 13, 14 years ago the Holy Spirit really revealed to us and helped us to see, and it totally changed the way we saw our own lives. Acts chapter 16, verse six. Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Hardward and Galatia. Pastor Robert told me, anytime there's a word pressing when you're reading scripture in public that you don't know, just say Hardward. I'm a man under authority. Paul and Silas traveled through the area of wherever that is in Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them. If you wanna hear how a Texan says Phrygia, I can do it for you, but it's probably wrong. 
The Holy Spirit, watch this, the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Messiah, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Messiah to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him. Come over to Macedonia and help us. I love this part. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. Let's get the picture here. Paul and Silas are headed in the direction they think God would want them to go. They're headed towards Asia, sending word ahead that they're on their way. And the Holy Spirit blocks them, some translations say. I get that picture. These are godly men on a godly mission. And God says, whoop, whoop, nah. Nope. But, 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 Asia, key to the end game. The work's gonna explode there, we gotta go. Nope. Okay, fine, get it, Holy Spirit. We're going to Bithynia. Nope. No, you're not. Cute, but no. Question, how do you handle when the Holy Spirit blocks your moves, which you think are the most godly moves you can make? You've seen this happen with me publicly over the last 12 months. The house of Bethany right around the corner that I was convinced was the one. This thing was perfect. And minutes away in a town like Scottsdale, too good to be true. We put in an offer. What happens? They accept a lower offer. How does one take that? You can take it two ways. The Holy Spirit told me no. I don't like the Holy Spirit right now. Or, that's what I'm talking about. Block me if it's not you. I don't care what they think. I just want you to get what you want. To me and the elders, it's, it appeared as the right move you wanted. But I love it when we're walking so in step with you that you feel comfortable enough, like with Paul and Silas, to go, nope, got, got something else. How about the building? I thought that building was the one. I really did. And what happened? We put an offer in. They accepted a lower offer. <laughs> you know what's awesome though? Oftentimes God will te teach you a lesson years before you need to learn it or know it. God actually taught Holly and me this lesson years ago when we were trying to buy a home here in Scottsdale. In Dallas, we had built our first home it cost us $78 a square foot. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody want to go back to that day? <laughs> we moved here, and at the time, the, the stuff in the city of Scottsdale was about 225 to 250 a square foot, and it needed to be torn down. Like, kitchens would need to be torn apart. And there was this one house that we really loved, but it had been gutted because of foreclosure, so the, the owners were angry, so they ripped out the entire kitchen, okay? Listen to this. 
Holly and I put an offer, a hundred thousand over list. Because it was listed so low in foreclosure, we came in strong. Someone came in with 5,000 less, all cash. We lost the house. Now having hindsight, one of the most G moves God has ever made in my life. <laughs> That's why when he tells me no, I don't whine about it. I might get a little sad, but I, when you say no, it's because you're making room for a yes. But listen to me. If we don't roll like Paul and Silas, here's what we will do. Call the whole journey off. No, man, I thought Asia was the way this thing was going to go. I've had this thing mapped out since I was a teenager. Don't tell me no. I wonder how many of us, our relationship with God is dependent on always hearing him tell us yes. Paul teaches us his friends frequently hear God say no. Watch, later Paul shows us he learned this lesson. If you're in 16, go to Acts 18, verse 19. They stopped at the, the first port, first stopped at the port of Ephesus where Paul left the others behind. While he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. They asked him to stay longer. Please, 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 please stay longer, Paul. But he declined. Watch this, verse 21. As he left, however, he said, I will come back later, God willing. This is huge to me because I, I think this is a little bit of a sarcastic moment where I would love to know what happened in between him declining their invitation and then on the way out, him going, you know what? On second thought, I will come back if God wills it to be so. I just wonder if his best friend, after the people were like, please, 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 please come back and visit us. And Paul's like, no, I'm not coming back. I wonder if... The Holy Spirit wasn't like, excuse me? Have I not taught you the lesson that you're a chess piece in my hand? I told you no on the way to Asia. I told you no on the way to Bithynia. And now you're telling me no? What if I want you to come back to these people? I think that's why Paul was like, hey, I thought about it. Between then and now, I was wrong. I will come back if that's what God wants because I'm just a chess piece in the hands of a sovereign, perfect God. It is 100% impossible to be a friend of God and remain in control of your life. If you're in control of your life, Jesus, Jesus isn't Lord of your life. If Jesus isn't Lord of your life, you cannot be a friend of God. So what's the solution? Give up control of your life. And get it through your thick skull that God is a user. What? Mm -hmm. God uses us. Now, he doesn't use us, but he does use us. See, some of us, when we hear the phrase, use me, think of what someone in a past season of your life did with you to use you for their own personal gain. God doesn't use us like that, but he does use us for his purposes to bring him more glory. God wants to use 
you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, one of my favorite Pauline passages, says, in a wealthy home, some utensils, things that are used, are made of gold and silver, and some are made of wood and clay. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions, and the cheap ones are for everyday use. Preston, if you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean, and you will be ready for the master to use you for every good work. In my opinion, one of the greatest compliments God could ever pay you is to choose to use you to do something he wants done. Kai, can you even imagine the God of the universe looking right into your eyes saying, listen, there's something I want done on the earth. And I just don't feel like I can trust anybody else. None of my friends, as it relates to this, can I entrust this to more than I can trust it to you. Hey, Kai, will you do this for me? I'd like to use you to bring me more glory. Is that not one of the greatest compliments you will ever be paid in your life? Yet because God seems to want to use us to do things which we don't want to do, we are bothered by this whole concept of being used by a holy God. I'm only happy when, when he wants to use me to do something I want to do. I want to sing in front of the whole church. And the Lord says, I didn't bless you with a good voice. I, I want to run a whole company by myself. And then the Lord says, I didn't bless you and I've not anointed you for that work. Listen, one of the things every follower of God and friend of God needs to settle is which would you rather do? The thing you want to do or the thing God will most anoint you to do? He will only anoint you most for the thing he wants to use you, which will bring him the most glory. But it may not be what you want. I want to teach. And the Lord says, I've graced you to greet. You're going to teach in one-offs at the door in 115 degree heat. Are you a chess piece? Or because you want control, have you become content to simply play checkers? Listen, I don't, I've never set the goal that Pillar Church would be famous on the earth. I've never said to the Lord, would you help Pillar Church be famous on the earth? But I will readily admit that I have said, but God, I want you to know my heart. I do want Pillar Church to be famous in heaven as well as in hell. Not worried about how many followers. While that might be a part of it, 
God, I want you to look at Pillar Church and say, this is one of my favorite chess pieces to move because these people always do what I ask them to do. That's the life dreams are made of. But you have to give up control. You will never have intimate fellowship with God as long as you are in control of your life. And one of the ways you know you're in control is when you get mad at him when he tells you no. I just want you to think how bold that is. The one who could smite you in a millisecond. And I would look in his direction and say, I am mad at you right now because you're not giving me what I want. That's not a friend of God. Dare I say, that's not even a follower of Jesus. That's a person stuck trying to be in control of their own way. Here's the fourth and last thing I want to show you that Paul teaches us about friendship with God. Acts 16, Paul, of si Paul and Silas in prison. Point number four, God's friends make foolish, I wanted to say stupid moves. And I put it in quotes because it seems stupid. But remember very clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says God uses the foolish to confound the wise. So if that's true about God, which it is, then that means one of his favorite things to do to get the attention of the worldly wise is to use the spiritually foolish. I'm going to show you one of the most stupid on paper moments in Paul's life. And I want you to put yourself in his shoes, okay? He's just been beaten senselessly. His back and body are raw. His wounds still wide open after that whip ripped his flesh off. And now he finds himself wrongly in prison. Verse 25 of Acts 16 says, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Hit the pause button. Homie just got whipped. He is singing? It's the middle of the night. They're praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake. And the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped. Okay, hit the pause button. Why would he assume the prisoners would escape? Because that's what he would have done. Earthquake goes down. All the cell doors open up. And not just that, all the chains fall off. The jailer's going, ain't nobody sticking around. Watch what the jailer does next, just with this thought. Because remember, the jailer's life depended upon the people in jail remaining in jail. You're not going to have much job security as a jailer if everybody in your jail always goes free. Watch what he's going to do. So he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop! Don't do it! His back 
is weeping pus and blood. And your only focus in this moment is the jailer? Don't kill yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He doesn't even ask them, why are you still here? Want my perspective of why he doesn't ask? Because he saw a particular look in their eyes. This is just how I see it. He didn't even ask them why they were here because he already knew the answer. He was the reason and he saw it in their eyes. What must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas drive a Mack truck through this hole. They reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. Bro, we didn't come in here just for you. We came in here for your legacy. They can all be saved. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Watch this. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer said to Paul, city officials have said you and Silas are free to leave. Go in peace. Now, there is more to this story, and I love what Paul does next. You can read about it if you want this week. But is it not pretty awesome that Paul the apostle, having been beaten wrongfully, imprisoned wrongfully, seems to have a perspective of jail nobody else has. What was Paul's perspective of jail? Two words, the jailer. If you catch this, this could alter the trajectory of your life. God, I don't wanna be in jail. So many of us spend so much time griping about the jail we think we're in that we don't even see the jailer God put us in jail to reach. But when you're a chess piece, even jail is awesome. This too shall pass, I think Paul would say. But you know what won't? The eternal security of this jailer and his family. So I gladly allow myself as a chess piece in the hands of a mighty God to sit my little bow honey down in this cell even when the chains fall off and the door flings open wide. Paul's literally saying, I believe with his life. And just imagine this conversation with his best friend, God. Paul, listen. There's something I need done. And you and Silas are the only ones I can trust to do it. But it's gonna be really hard. Well, Lord, what is it? 
I need you to be beaten nearly to the point of death. And then I need you to allow yourself as a Roman citizen to be wrongfully jailed. Because I'm going after that jailer and his grandbabies. I wonder if Paul wouldn't have just said, oh, hold on just a sec. You mean if I agree to be beaten and go to jail when I don't deserve to, that you're going to use me to win that jailer and his family to become your best friends? Put me in the cell then, Lord. Can you imagine what the church might do on the earth if they adopted this mentality? I'm not here for the palace. I'm here for the jail. What if we changed our church slogan? Which we don't have one, so you can't change it. But what if we made our church slogan? Send us to jail, oh God. Probably be like putting don't come here on the wall in your lobby. <laughs> exactly the kind of thing you would expect from someone like me. Send us to jail, O oh God. What do you mean when you say send us to jail, O oh God? That if God makes a deal, that I will obediently go into that jail cell, that it will use me to win that jailer, then my response is, best friend, send me to jail. Why are you here? I don't mean here. I mean here. Why do you have oxygen in your lungs? Is it to do everything you want to do? Or is it to be a chess piece in the hands of a mighty God? If it's to be a chess piece in the hands of a mighty God, you need to stop acting like you're in control. And you need to start embracing jail. Because only in jail can you reach the jailer? Why does God still have me at this job? You just answered your own question. God still has you at this job. Why, Lord? Her name's Sally, and you've walked by her a hundred times over the last 12 months. And I've been passionately pursuing her broken heart for the last 12 years. And before I let you go, I'm going to use you to set her free. Don't ask questions out loud you don't want to know the answer to. Yes, there's things God can teach you in jail, but that's, in my opinion, not the reason he sends you to jail. He sends you to jail to reach the jailer.